I remember just thinking, um, I don't want to live anymore. When I was like, you know, 17, 18 is when I first started drinking. I remember I told my mom and dad for the last time, like, hey, I need help. And I actually mean it this time. That's for those of you listening, whether you're a resident of the program, whether you're a family member, a current or a future supporter. But life today is good. When I was seeing it work in other people as well as myself, something just changed. I've got a little over five years of sobriety. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Hope Dealers Podcast. So good to be back. My name is Sean Fitzpatrick. I am your host. Hope everybody out there had a wonderful Thanksgiving, good time with the family. And uh, today we've got a very special guest. Uh, it's one of my favorite people. He's uh, got quite the personality and quite the energy that he's going to bring to the show today. My good friend, Mr. Luke Armstrong. What's up, dude? Man, not a whole lot. Been hustling and grinding. That's what we do. <laughs> Absolutely. Hustling and grinding. I like it. How was your Thanksgiving? Man, it was so good. It was so good. We did a, a Friendsgiving with all the residents that uh, didn't uh, have the opportunity to go back home. Um, and that was really, really cool. And then I went and hung out with my my other good friend, Brett, and his family. And then I got to take a plate to my grandmother. And I got to sit with her and talk for a couple hours and hang out. And that was, that was really good. It's good to be able to do that kind of stuff. Awesome. Awesome, man. Sounds like you had a had a good time. So Luke is um, our one of our senior program managers. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And so you oversee North Carolina and mm. Oklahoma City. Yes. Okay. And so just for our listeners, um, just kind of talk about what that means a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, like as we get sober and we grow, like we find these new passions, um, you know, we'll I'll get into later about like, you know, dance and that sort of stuff in my life that I've done. But uh, I've grown this passion through being a program manager of like equipping and empowering leaders. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I didn't realize that was something that God had put on my heart, but that's literally what I do. It's like I help build and equip and empower these program managers to be better program managers and also equip and empower their residents to be leaders. So we're not just walking out sober, but we're walking out leaders in our home yeah. and in our community. and. Right, That's because good. as we all know at HIA, it's not just about getting sober. Exactly. It's about radical life change. Absolutely. So I love that. That's awesome, man. So how long have you been working for Hope is Alive? How, when did you come in the program as a resident? Kind of give us a little background on yourself. Yeah, um, I came in December 19th of 2019. Uh, so this December, I will have three years living in the homes. Okay. Uh, I came on staff in March, late March of 2021. Yeah. And so I remember when you first came in, I was at a Sunday night meeting and I was walking around trying to get stuff on Inst- the HIA Instagram and I needed someone to do kind of like an intro video. And I remember your PM at the time was like, we'll have Luke do it. And I, I just remember you like dancing and kind of flailing your arms around. And I was like, who, who is this guy? <laughs> like, yeah. It was up at the cemetery. That's yeah. one of the last times we went to the cemetery. That is one of the last, because that was pre COVID. Yeah. Yeah. God, that was right before. That seems like, I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and so, and you've been on staff for how long now? Um, I'll have two years coming up in March. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. And so you, if I remember correctly, you started off here in the city working, right? Yes. Yeah. Here, so okay, I, I, I was a resident on the South side of Oklahoma city. Um, I stepped in, um, and took over 
H2 and H4 yeah. here on the north side. Mm-hmm. And I did that for about six or seven months. And then I moved to the south side, That's right. which was really cool just to be able to to go back to where I was a resident and get to lead those guys and just started, really yeah. pour into that. Um, and then I got the opportunity to go out to North Carolina. Um, and my, my big thing through all of that is like carrying culture and being a culture builder. Yeah, um, it was good. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember I had the opportunity to see you in North Carolina when I went out there last spring. Mm-hmm. See you. And uh, I think one of the first things you said to me when I got there is you were like, I'm really spoiled out here. Like, this place is beautiful. <laughs> yes. That's what I tell everybody. Yeah, just that home is beautiful. The community there is beautiful. I think that's the biggest thing is like the community out there. There's this um, man we talk about and speak about addiction. Like, we bring yeah. that to the light. Um, and so there's not this stigma wrapped around addicts and, mm. and alcoholics out there. So the community surrounds them and sees it yeah. as like a disease and an illness and this stuff that like they need help with overcoming. Yeah. And it had to be different, right? I mean, coming from, you know, when you're in Oklahoma City, I've talked about this a couple of times, you know, like you're in kind of like the heart of it, right? Where there's a lot going on, you know, there's there's like eight or nine homes here. The central office is here. The founders are here. The, the, the directors are all here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go out to the East Coast of North Carolina, and there's just two homes. There's just a few staff members. Um, but it's the same culture mm-hmm. in like a, the other side of the country. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Like what a wild feeling that is? Yeah. Um, oh, so when I got out there initially, um, there was kind of this undertone with some of the guys, like they kind of thought like we're different or this is different. You know what I mean? Did that stuff. Cause like we're way out here and I was like, no, no, no. Like, let me, <laughs> let me show you like what it is that we do, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and so it was really cool to watch that catch fire out there mm-hmm. and to watch these guys just like eat that up. Cause that's one of the big things that we do. Like the culture is our soil. Like this is what these yes. guys are planted in. So we have to pour nutrients and, and values into that to like help them grow. Uh, but it was cool Cause I've, I'm an addict and an alcoholic, yeah. you know? Um, and so I uprooted myself from my community here and my routine here and was able to go there and be instantly transplanted, which I think is huge for yeah. people in recovery to be able to go there and to build not just a routine, but a community around myself quickly yeah. to, to continue to do this thing. That's awesome, man. Very well said. So let's get into your story a little mm-hmm. bit. So, you know, you, like you said, you're an addict, an addict and an alcoholic, um, every story has a beginning and that's what we do on the Hope Dealers podcast is we tell stories. Um, so just take us back, you know, what was, what was your childhood like? What was the early beginnings of Luke Armstrong like? Um, the early beginnings of Luke Armstrong. I sounds like a really good book name. <clears throat> it does. It does. <laughs> the early beginnings of Luke Armstrong. I'm just kind of picturing you on the front with like that really serious face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just pondering and yeah. look gazing into the distance. That's good. That's <laughs> good. Beginnings of Luke Armstrong. Anyways, um, so I was born in Texas. Um, yeah, I, my parents split up when I was little, and I grew up in Arkansas. I can, man, for as long as I can remember, I just felt like I didn't fit. Mm. You know, uh, I had really, really bad allergies. My mom t- treated me like Jake Gyllenhaal and Bubble Boy, <laughs> um, and so. Uh, uh, you know, there was that. And then, um, you know, my, my older siblings, like there was a lot of, there was a lot of chaos, uh, as far as like, um, them being addicts and alcoholics, mm. um, and, and, you know, growing through this. And so I really felt like I didn't have a voice. Um, but also, 
like with my parents splitting up when I was young um, and then moving to Arkansas and doing that, like they didn't have like an emotional outlet. And so there was a lot of that, like I took the brunt of that. Yeah. Um, and so I felt very rejected there, like kind of in my family, I felt rejected physically by the world. So I didn't branch out socially. Mm. Um, and ultimately, like, I believe that like God rejected me too, you know? Yeah. Um, and so there was just that instant, I can vividly remember just feeling rejected on all sides now. So it's like, not like you don't believe in God. You just aren't, you feel like he doesn't really want much to do with you. Yeah. Like I could believe that he'd work in your life, but I didn't believe that he would do anything for me. I didn't believe that I deserved it or was worthy of anything yeah. like that. Like there was something wrong with me. Absolutely. I think that's something that a lot of people listening can relate to, especially those going, uh, you know, that are in recovery. Um, it's just like, we're not, I wouldn't call it like a pity party on ourselves, but we definitely are at a point, you know, a lot of us just come from this place where it's like, yeah, I'm sure God's out there. I'm sure he's real and everything, but uh, he ain't doing nothing for me, you know, mm -hmm. so have fun with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's just a, that's a tough place to be in. So, so go on. Yeah. Um, man, I don't by any means want to like make it seem like my childhood was terrible. Sure. Like I was absolutely loved. Like my mom and my dad like love me. My family loves me. Yeah. Uh, I think ultimately I didn't know how to be loved. I think mm. that's the root of it is I didn't know what that looked like. You know, we think about children. Yeah. If mommy doesn't let me, you know, stay up till two o'clock in the morning, eat ice cream. I'm like, oh, you hate me. <laughs> you know, so like my love or understanding of love hadn't matured yeah. um, and it wouldn't for a long time until recently. Um, but I had fun. I, I played in the woods with my brother and my cousin, you know, ran around. We did LARPing before LARPing was an actual thing. We'd <laughs> run around with sticks and um, fight bad guys and do that sort of stuff. So like I, I enjoyed my childhood and I had a lot of fun and there was a lot of laughter. Yeah. Um, but you know, my older siblings are addicts and alcoholics. And so as that developed and ramped up and um, my mom remarried um, and, and there were um, addicts and alcoholics like in my siblings there. And so that just that chaos and tumultuous um, culture mm -hmm. or like soil that I was planted in, um, continued to feed this idea of like being rejected. So you said that you've got, you had siblings mm -hmm. that were addicts and alcoholics. I mean, did that make you feel like that was your future? Like that, that's, that's what you were headed for. What's crazy is like, no. Okay. Um, so I lost one of my oldest brothers when I was 16 um, and then four days before my 16th birthday, a separate one of my brothers um, drove headfirst into an F-250. He was drunk and high on pills. And, uh, you know, one of my other brothers had been to rehab and in and out. Um, and, uh, and, and the other one um, was like doing his stuff behind closed doors, but it was kind of evident um, that this stuff was going on and doing that. And I just remember this, man, my heart broke for them, but there was this great disdain and anger. Like I felt like my childhood was robbed because my parents ah, were chasing them. Gotcha. And so I was never going to be that. Mm. So there was this belief that like, as long as I'm not doing meth and heroin and whatever, like I'm not an addict, I'm fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that would be the beginning and that would be the slippery slope that would just tank me. Yeah. I like what you said there. As long as I'm not doing meth and heroin, then, then I'm not an addict. That was my I mean, that was pretty much my uh, slogan for a lot of my addiction was like, well, I don't do heroin. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like me and my friends. That's what we would all tell people. Uh, I was just like, yeah, I mean, we party, but we don't do heroin. Yeah. Or anything. <laughs> I think that's a cultural thing, though, too, because it's like sure. that's what Hollywood says. It's like Hollywood, yeah. you know, they picture and dramatize like these heroin addicts and, and meth addicts and, you know, and crackheads and do this like they make this. It, it's a it's a show kind of a deal. And this is the worst of the worst. And so people don't think that they have an addiction until it's too late, until they start heading that direction. Right. Um, or, I mean, what's even scarier that is like they function 
and they go to work and do that and they just destroy their relationships and their family and the lives of their children and do this and that because they're able to function and like they don't lose everything you know mm-hmm. yeah it's it's funny I, I, I function that's a very good way of putting it i feel like a lot of us um are in our addiction for a lot longer because of that function mm-hmm. you know whenever we're able to function you know i mean i'm only i was 29 when i got sober this time that's and i've been sober since i'll be 33 in january and so when I tell people, yeah, like that I got sober at 29 after 15 years in addiction, they're like, that's a, that's a really long time. Well, yeah, but I was functioning the whole time. That was mm-hmm. all it was is I was functioning until I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what tends to make us crash a little harder. We're functioning till we're not. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we're functioning well. It just right. means like we're, f- I'm <laughs> just functioning. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surviving. Yeah. Surviving. And that really is, I mean, not to oversimplify it, but that's just no way to live. Yeah. Just surviving who, you know, and I think that's one of the biggest things that I take away from, you know, a life of recovery is like, you know, it's not just about having money in my pocket and a nice shirt. It's just that feeling of not having to just survive every day. Yes. Yeah. Surviving is a good word. Yeah. Cause that's what it is. It's worse. We're surviving not to get super nerdy with you. But when I think about that, like I think about a half life and I think about um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, you okay. know, Voldemort, like latched to the back of him. Like that's what this addiction is, is it's feeding off of us, you yes. know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So bring me through, uh, you know, high school and kind of what that looks like when things start spinning out for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, man, I, it's important for me to like say this, the first time that I got high, I was seven years old. Mm. Um, so if I, God willing, by the grace of God, whenever I get eight years, it'll be the longest I've ever been sober my entire life consecutively, wow. which is a crazy thought to have. Yeah, um, that is a crazy thought to have. Yeah. Um, but not, and not to cut you off, but like, that's something that I'm really glad you brought up because there's a lot of people early in recovery and even like, you know, just in recovery in general that kind of let that fact bring them down or the loved ones of addicts is like the fact that, like you said, you know, like that'll be the longest you've been sober. Mm-hmm. After eight years, you know, I used to think there was something wrong with me because, you know, I started using when I was 14 and I was like, you know, so when I remember when I got, you know, a year clean at 29, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the longest I've been sober in 15 years. Like that's, and I, and I think just those facts are, uh, they, they kind of bring us down a little bit yeah, and kind of make us doubt ourselves even when we are doing good and mm-hmm. being sober. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Seven years old. Yeah. The first time you get high. Well, and there's, man, I think there's a big part of that. You talk about like the mindset doing that, like, you know, the shame that comes with that, like at that early of an age or even as a teenager or like a preteen or doing anything like that, like developmental child psychology is so real, Mm -hmm. you know, like there are things that I need in that. And what I instantly found in there was that it's okay for me to change the way that I think and feel. Yeah. And so I instantly became addicted to escapism. Like, you know, ultimately like whatever I had to do to not deal with reality or my life or the stuff that was going on or how I felt inside, like I could find a way to escape. And so from then on out, like, I don't think I would make it a year without using some sort of substance after that. Okay. Um, now the first time I got high, I wasn't like shooting meth. I wasn't like seven years old, you know, like, which is, I mean, tragic that like there's stories that are out there that are like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, like, uh, I smoked weed, you know, that's, that's what it was. And Um, but it was the undertone that it set for the rest of my life that like, I can change the way that I think and feel, and that's acceptable and that's okay. Like it was glorified, you know, it was done kind of like as a, um, 
like as a rite of passage, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that was, um, that was huge. And so I leading from then up through, I said, my mom remarried, mm-hmm. um, the relationship between me and my stepdad was rocky at first. Cause I felt like he was trying to replace my dad. And I thought my dad was Superman and I couldn't, you know, as a kid and I couldn't understand why my dad left, you know what I mean? Or, or why this stuff happened, why they split up? Like, why did this happen? You know, we're always trying to find the why. Right. Um, and, uh, and I, I would never really find that, you know? Um, and so I would go through, I'd play sports. I played basketball for most of my childhood, um, rolling up through junior high, middle school. Um, what position were you? Um, I'm, I'm pretty tall. So they typically had me as a post. Okay. Yeah. Same um, here. I get it. Yeah. Both grew up tall, which so. is crazy though. Cause like I'm six, three now and that's the average point guard in right. the NBA. So it's like, uh, yeah, you should have, I should have been trained better. Yeah. It's okay. Oh, well, that's what happens though. When you're the tall guy in school, they're just like, all right, you're, you're down there. You're like, well, I don't really want to play down there. No, but you're the tall guy. So yeah. Yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. Um, so I played a lot of basketball. I did enjoy, I did really love that. Um, my older siblings played football and I wanted to play. My mom wouldn't let me play until junior high. Mm. Uh, and so finally junior high came and I got to start playing football. Um, and, uh, and I broke my ankle the first year, broke, it, broke it in three places. It's the only bone I've ever broken, but I broke it all the way through the tibia and then back again through the fibula. Um, and, uh, that was gnarly. I walked on it for like a week. I didn't know that it was broken cause I'd never broken anything. My mom's a nurse and she freaked out whenever we came back from my dad's. She's like, what is wrong with you? It's broken. We got to go to the doctor. I was like, okay, sorry, mom. Yeah. Um, and so man, really my school system was set up where like junior high was like eighth and ninth grade in a building and yeah. then high school was like 10th, 11th and 12th. Mm-hmm. Um, so freshman year, I mean, I started doing theater kind of stuff and doing that, but uh, I think the bulk of like my high school and where I started to shift and change was that sophomore year of high school. Mm-hmm. And so I rolled into my sophomore year of high school, broke my ankle the summer before um, and uh, couldn't play football. And I, when I started out, I was doing well, you know what I mean? Like I enjoyed it, loved it. Um, I was pretty quick, um, mm-hmm. pretty naturally athletic. And then I, uh, four days, like I said earlier, four days before my 16th birthday that year, um, one of my older siblings was, uh, drunk and, and high on pills and drove his little S10 into an F250. And so he's in a coma for like three months. Jeez. Um, and I remember, man, it's, it was like a scene out of a movie. I remember being in the hospital and my mom saying, Hey, your, your birthday's tomorrow. I want you to go back to Mountain Home, Arkansas. And I want you to go to school. I was like, mom, I don't want to go to school. This is terrible. <laughs> um, and so I, uh, uh but I, I went to school, um, you know, like you, you see like movies where like lockers are slamming and the cameras panning around, around this person that's sitting there making it look like they're isolated. Like that's how I felt like the mm-hmm. world was going on and like my world was crashing and crumbling. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I really didn't feel like I had a voice. Yeah. Like I didn't talk about any of these emotions that were going on because of all the stuff that was going on. My parents chasing after, you know, my other siblings and trying to fix and make sure that things were great and doing that. Like I didn't talk about how much I was suffering. I was a very depressed, very anxious kid. You know, um, I, I, I would cut myself, you know, uh, that same year, um, I would end up like trying to commit suicide. Um, and, uh, in doing that, um, my dad got remarried that January to my stepmom and they've been together ever since. And it's wonderful to have a great marriage. Yeah. Um, and my relationship with them is, is like so awesome today. Like I talk to my dad two or three times a week. Uh, it's great. But initially where I was at and with everything going on, I really felt like 
I was being left behind. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I felt. Um, and so, uh, that coupled with, you know, the brother being in a coma with my ankle being broken and not being able to get out any teen angsty aggression kind of a thing, playing contact sports. And then, and, uh, in March of that year, um, my oldest stepbrother was in a motorcycle accident and passed away. Um, Jeez. and so literally like it just, we just got hammered. My family got hammered. Yeah. Um, Things and just kind of crumbling down yeah. around you. Yeah. I, I, I remember the night that my brother passed away. Um, my mom left to go to like the rec site cause she'd heard and doing that and they needed to make sure that like it was him. Mm. Um, and, uh, I remember it was like a time warp. It's like her taillights pulled away and then they pulled back in. Um, and she went across this. So we've got like, like eight acres and there's like an apartment across the street. Yeah. Um, not like something that we turned into an apartment, like a living space. And my sister, my older sister was living over there at the time. And she went in to tell them and I walked in right after she told her, um, but I hadn't heard. And I just saw my sister's reaction. My mom came to me and it was like, she was like a shell, you know what yeah. I mean? Like just like drifting through. And she just told me like, your brother, your brother's dead. Um, Jeez. and, uh, and we walked across the street up into the house and we closed the door and I like turned to her and I said, I said, mom, I want to, I want to, I want to be the one to tell Emily. Cause like my whole time, the whole time walking across the street, I was like, she can't tell my little sister this way. Like this right. isn't the way, you know what I mean? Cause my little sister's like three and a half years younger than I am. Yeah. Um, and so at this time she's like 11 or 12. Mm. Um, and, uh, and my mom said, yeah, that's fine. And then she just melted and she was like my, she was like my tower, like my rock. She's the strongest person I've seen, you know, before she married my stepdad, she was a single mom going to nursing school, working a job, raising four kids. And we were not easy. You know, I'm, I'm an adult now and I'm still rambunctious. Like as yeah. a kid, I was, I was into everything, just way too curious and smart for my own good. Um, but yeah, I just watched her crumble. Uh, I watched that happen. And so, um, from there I would, uh, I didn't want to be at home. You know, I mean, the expression, like, seems like somebody died in here. Like, that's what it was like going home. It's like, yeah. um, uh, it's like somebody sucked all the air out of the room. Mm. And so I volunteered for the spring musical. Um, and I got to work backstage and I got to be the puppeteer for little shop of horrors. Okay. It was awesome. We had a 26 foot plant, um, the Audrey too. And I got to eat people. I didn't get, I didn't have any speaking lines to do anything, but I got to eat people <laughs> and I got to move the mouth to like the beat of the person speaking and singing. Um, and that was when I really fell in love with theater. Like really, really, I'd been to shows before, like my grandmother paid for my dad to take us to singing in the rain and he made it rain. They made it rain on stage and I loved it and it was cool. And so like, I was interested and I kind of enjoyed it, but I hadn't like dove into it. And after that, I realized like, man, um, theater and acting and doing that stuff, like you create human life on stage. You can yeah. bring people joy in the middle of their sorrows, whatever's going on. Man, I, I gotta say like, <laughs> I've, this is why I love doing this podcast or one of the reasons is I've known you for years now and I had no idea that you were ever in a production of Little Shop of Horror. Like <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> As the plant. Yeah. It's one of my, one That's of amazing. my favorite deals. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we will come back and hear about uh, life post theater life. From mm. Mr. Luke Armstrong. We'll be yeah. right back. This episode of the Hope Dealers podcast has been brought to you by Finding Hope Support Groups. Finding Hope is a support group for loved ones of addicts. Through our meetings, you'll find education, inspiration, and a community of other loved ones who have been impacted by addiction. Finding Hope Support Groups currently has 40 meetings across the country. To find out more, visit findinghope.today. All right, Luke. So when we left off, you were talking about 
how you were getting into theater mm-hmm. and kind of finding that new passion. Um, let's let's pick it up. Beautiful. Yeah. So um, through theater, I got plugged in with uh, a local dance studio. Yeah. Um, and I helped out with that. And they said any of the guys that wanted to dance could come back and dance for free. Um, and that's where I found my voice. It's like I started dancing oh. and I felt like I didn't have to tell anybody what was going on inside of me. I could just let it out. Uh, and so this mentality built is like, I'm going to rescue my mom, and my little sister, and I'm going to make it to Broadway and do this and this. Um, and I'm going to leave my small town and I'm going to leave uh, all the chaos behind and I'm going to be great. Um, and I got a scholarship to come to Oklahoma city to go to Oklahoma city university. Um, oh. and I majored in dance performance there. Uh, and that was really cool, but not great for me personally. Um, Cause that was where like, I thought I could just cut out everything, you know what yeah. I mean? Drinking all that stuff and do that. And, uh, and that's not what happened. It intensified and I found cocaine um, mm. and uh, and things would just plummet from there because, man, the issue was inside of me and I was trying to change externals. Ah. And so uh, I dropped out of college and I started surviving. That's what I, that's what I started doing. Um, I, uh, I went to a place um, here in the city. I went to like, I'd gone to my dad would send me to church camps over the summers. And so right. I'd found a place that, uh, like a church that was here that was doing like an internship little deal. And I went to that and there was some religious abuse wrapped up in that, um, some stuff that was going on that wasn't okay. Um, and I didn't change and I started selling drugs and I got caught and they called me a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, <laughs> a whole mess of things. And so I left there and I just had no direction. Like I was going aimless. Um, And so I I rolled into the streets. That's what I did. You know what I mean? Um, That's the culture that like I had like envied. I felt weak and powerless as a child. And in that I found that people respected me. They wanted to be around me and they wanted what I had and I could use that. Mm. Um, And so uh, I would start getting involved um, with gang activity um, and I would start, um, man, like it just, progressed quickly over a, f- a couple of years, um, to the point where like I'm selling cocaine, I'm driving down to Houston and picking up, um, pints of, of codeine of lean, um, mm-hmm. and, and running back and doing that. And, uh, and the whole time I thought that I was just the greatest thing ever, you know, <laughs> um, I would catch a couple possession charges. Uh, I'd go home for Christmas and catch a DUI and I'd be stuck in my small town for six months. And just that drove me nuts. Cause yeah. I was like, I can't be back here. Da, 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 da. Um, I'd get out of there and I'd go to Norman, Oklahoma and I'd stay with my brother for a little bit and I'd reconnect with the same people I was running around up here with. And, um, so are you at a point where, I mean, it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, like everything just kind of keeps getting worse, but you continue to make decisions, you know, I I was delusional. Right. So it's like, okay, this is going wrong. I guess I'll go do this. But are you at a point now? I guess what I'm asking is where it's like, okay, I've come this far. Like, who cares? Like, it's already gotten this bad. Or are you even aware of that at the time? I was still, like, celebrating all the stuff. I just thought I was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Um, you know, I would show up to parties or I'd show up to events or I'd show up to someone's house and it'd be like, you know, you know oh, LA's here. You know what I mean? You know, mm. this and that. And I was running around with, they're my best friends. Um, they're twins. Their names are um, said and dead. I'm rolling around with them. Like, it's said dead in LA. You know what I mean? And doing yeah. that stuff. And we just had this whole thing going. Um, and so there wasn't anything until the legal stuff, there wasn't anything really that I thought was bad about it. Cause I wasn't doing heroin and I wasn't doing meth, 
You know, that's <laughs> that's where I was with it. Yeah. You know, I could do as much Xanax and cocaine as I wanted to, but you're still at a point where as long as it's not heroin or meth, yeah, you're okay. And as long as I can have enough money by selling to continue to get high and to do a little bit of stuff on the weekends and do that stuff, like I I had man, for all the ambition that I had prior to that, I had absolutely none in no direction. You know. But does it feel like this is just what you're good at? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, that, that, so just leave me alone, guys. Like, this is what I'm good at. Yeah. I've got a happy life because of it. Happy. I'm doing air quotes. You guys can't see me, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, I was good at it. Like we, we were good at it. Um, I saw positive, um, I saw positive reactions on people's face, no matter if they were real or fake, you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, and doing that, whether it was just what they wanted. And I loved that feeling. Cause I remember I talked about feeling utterly rejected. Right. So I found acceptance in that. But so, so you're feeling accepted now. Yeah. And I found significance in that. And I felt safe because I had power. You know what I mean? Nobody was going to mess with us. Nobody was going to, you know what I mean? Like we were going to handle ours. Like we were, that was what we were doing. So if you're out there and that's you just know that you're not alone. Because that's how it goes for a lot of us in active addiction is just that need to feel accepted. We've all been there. So continue on, Luke. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it would just continue to progress. Like, I thought it was getting better, but it was definitely getting darker and darker. Mm -hmm. I just didn't realize. You know, I'd never, my life had been characterized by chaos. Yeah. Emotional, physical, you know what I mean? Chaos. Yeah. Um, and so I would... Uh, um, I would come back to, or I would be there in Norman. Um, a bunch of stuff would blow up, um, around Christmas of 2018. And my brother that I was living with had moved back home. My nieces and nephews would go into, to foster care into the system. And my ex sister-in-law would just go into the wind. Um, and I wouldn't have a place to live. Um, <laughs> and I was not going back back to Arkansas. I wasn't doing it, you know, um, that place was home, but it wasn't home to me at that time. Yeah. Uh, and so I was homeless. Um, at that point I was homeless and I was slinging shoes at the mall in Norman and selling Coke. And that's what I was doing. Um, and realistically I was selling enough Coke to use the amount of Coke that I was doing. Um, not a lot was, of profit there. Well, there was no profit there. <laughs> I was, I was living that half-life. I was surviving, yeah. you know, I wouldn't talk about how hopeless it was. Like I, I didn't, man, my, f for all intents and purposes, even though like I was homeless and doing that, or at least in my eyes, um, I wasn't showing them all the stuff that was going on. Like yeah. they could see that maybe something was going on and things were getting kind of bad, but there wasn't like this. They didn't, they didn't know. I didn't, I don't think things really started to come out until, uh, I, I, um, I ended up getting robbed one night, got my face smashed in with a pistol and, uh, and I wouldn't go visit my dad. He mm. wanted me to come visit him. I wouldn't go visit him. Um, and, uh, um, and so I think he, then he kind of started to see the signs cause they'd been through it with my older siblings, yeah. see the signs of stuff that was kind of going on. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd be homeless and I'd be, I'd be doing that. Um, and my boss found out that I was homeless at the time where I was working and told me that I could stay with him. Um, and I, uh, Sorry. Um, You're good. At that point, I was like, wow, like I finally caught a break. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like there are good people in the world. Right. Um, but that was that was not how things turned out. So the first night that I was there, um, he would end up getting me um, blackout drunk um, and, and get me high and, uh, and sexually abusing me. Um, and all of that power that I thought that I had, all that respect that I thought that I had, 
you know, being able to lie, cheat, steal, rob, do whatever, a lot of stuff. Like, um, it just stripped away. And yeah. I just felt like that. I felt used up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt like worse than that scared little kid. Like yeah. I had done something like I'd done something along the way to like ruin whatever chance he had at a life. Yeah. Um, and so prior to that, whenever I would get drunk or I would get really high or do something like that, there was like this almost like a healthy fear of like, Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> <coughs> My throat got dry. <laughs> right in the good part. Um, backtrack a sec. So, uh, prior to that, like when I would get high, like it felt like there was a black hole inside of me and I was afraid. I was afraid of what I was capable of because I would consume everything. Like I... I wanted everything more, more, more. Nothing was ever enough. Um, and whether it was women, whether it was, you know, drugs, whether it was alcohol, whether it was money, oh my gosh, money. Um, and, uh, and doing that after that, I wasn't afraid of the black hole anymore. Like I just dove head first. You know, if people were going to be like that, um, and I was never going to catch a break, I was going to be the best at being the worst. Um, Mm. and that's where things would tank. Um, and ultimately that would lead me to, um, I'd steal a Range Rover and I'd be in a high speed chase and I would get into a physical altercation with a police officer while trying to run away on foot. Um, cause they wrecked multiple SUVs into me until the car wouldn't drive anymore. Um, and I would sit in jail for six months and I'd be facing 15 years. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's like, I look back and I know that God was like all over it. Yeah. Cause like, a few months back, I prayed to God, like, God, I can't stop this. And I don't know what to do. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I'm not doing anything with my life. Like I don't want to work, pay taxes and die. Like I might as well be dead, you know? Um, but he knew that I wasn't going to do it on my own. And I was too gosh darn stubborn to even try. You know <laughs> As I mean? most of us are. Help. Yeah. I didn't want to ask for help. Well, it's also like that, you know, if I ask for help, then I have to stop. <laughs> yeah. And then people are going to know, like, they can, they can hold that over my head, man. Like, I don't need any of that. Uh, I don't think I have a problem. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times, like, throughout the years I've had people ask me, like, you know, what does it take to, you know, to turn my life around? I want to get sober. And you tell them everything they have to do. And it's like. I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, per yeah. se. Yeah, they <laughs> instantly start rationalizing, yeah. <laughs> then all of a sudden, there's a lot of backpedaling. But so, so you go to jail for six months. Things are just not going well. At all. Not and at all. And you've got to make a change, though. Yeah. Or else we might not be sitting here today. Yeah, so Hope is Live like, wasn't even on the table. I remember three months in, um, just giving up and being like, I'm going to prison. Three months yeah. into being in jail, yeah, okay, um, just like I'm, I'm going to prison and uh, s- s- God stuff. Like God showed up, um, and I, my judge ended up getting switched to a judge that had a heart for like recovery. Um, mm. And those twins that I had mentioned prior to this, while I was the six months I was in Arkansas, they rolled into Hope Is Alive, and we're in Hope Is Alive for a little bit, and so. Um, my dad had remembered that and me talking about them. And so he brought that to my lawyer and my lawyer brought that to this judge and the judge was like, Hey, we're either going to give him enough rope to hang himself with, um, or he's going to make it, um, yeah. it's going to be a lifeline. And so three months later after that, I would, um, the CEO would come over the box and be like, Armstrong, back your stuff. I was like, you're lying to me. 
I'm going to prison. Don't, what are you doing? And he's right. like, surely this is right, just to transfer me. Yeah. Yeah. You can stay if you want. I was like, no, I don't, are you serious? He's like, I'm not telling you again. I just booked it. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, I would walk out of there. Uh, I went in, in June 30th of 2019 and I got out December 19th of 2019 and it was winter time. Did you go door to door, like jail to help us alive? Absolutely. There wasn't, I didn't, I didn't go to treatment. So that's a fun, fun fact. You know what I mean? It's like, neither did I, not before help us alive. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which is not a totally, I don't want to say normal because we don't, we don't like that word around here, but nothing's normal. um, Nothing is normal. No. Um, No, but that is a different thing for a lot of us, like not going to treatment before coming in, Mm -hmm. but you would have been sitting in jail for six months. Yeah. So I was sober as a gopher. Yeah. So six months clean when you show up. Yeah. When I show up. Now I didn't know what that meant. And I, and I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I just didn't want to go to prison for 15 years. I was like, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. I think it was, it, it may have been you who told me this a while back. Like you were, (laughs) you were willing enough to not be homeless at this point and not go to prison. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's, and you know what? That's all you need. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I firmly believe and I experienced that like the culture that we have here um, creates an atmosphere where like God can move and he can soften hearts. Just get in the door. Yeah. Just get in the door. Get in the door and say yes. Say yes more times than you say no. I promise your life will change. Yeah. I talked about that last week with Amy. It's like when I came in, I didn't really know what Hope is Alive was. Um, I mean, I knew they had some houses. I was hoping I got the house with the pool. Um, and I knew that it was not, all I really knew was that it wasn't where I currently was. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to live on the streets. And when I got there, I just remember thinking like, well, my way hasn't worked. I'll just start saying yes, where I would normally say no. And it turned out that was in quite a few places. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's all of us when we come in, mm-hmm. the things that we're saying yes to is something that we probably wouldn't be saying yes to in our yeah. previous life. Now, I wasn't an ideal resident. I was a knucklehead. Yeah. I remember. I, I, I relapsed <laughs> about three weeks out the gate. I, this is how insane. Um, I, I relapsed. Uh, I, and I hadn't even gone to court yet for the judge to say it was okay for me to stay there. I was on a PR bond, which basically means like, or P, yeah, like pre-trial. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember my lawyer being like, what is, what is wrong with you? what is wrong with you? Why would you do that? Like, you know, that if they ask me, I'm not allowed to lie. Like that's the law. I've got to tell them what you did. And like, just fingers crossed, afraid the whole time I was going to court. Um, after that I'd be in the house and like, I was all about checking boxes. I'd check boxes until I was blue in the face. Um, and I didn't have any problem telling people about the terrible stuff that I was doing. So for our listeners real quick, when you say checking boxes, what do you mean? Compliance versus surrender. Mm. So that's a huge part of getting this deal. So it's like getting a list of things to do and just kind of checking that off, but not really going through like the experience of what you're, you know, you're not, you're not experiencing the program. You're just like, all right, so I got a bank account. All right. So I went to a meeting. Mm -hmm. All right. So I read this book. Yeah. Yeah. My whole motivation behind that was like, like I was telling you earlier is I believed that God could work in your life, but I didn't believe, I didn't believe he could work in mine. There might be a God, but he ain't working in my life. Yeah. People don't really change. You know, um, I, I hadn't ever really seen anybody change up to that point or I'd never paid attention enough to see anybody change. Sure. Uh, and so I didn't believe it was possible. Um, and so where that would come in and that change would come in, I think it's important to backtrack just a hair. I met, 
um, my good friend, Brett, that I told you about, I spent Thanksgiving with. Brett um, Mills is also one of our senior program managers. He is, he is, he's, uh, he's my best friend today for sure. Um, I met him in jail. We were, we were sagged out together. For those of you that don't know, seg is segregation. Mm-hmm. We were locked in a cell for multiple hours with no books, no nothing. It was, there's a whole story there, but I met him and that was like four months in. And then he, like we split up, he ended up leaving and going to treatment. We never talked about Hope is Alive. And, uh, and I, and he goes into Hope is Alive. I get out, I come in and these two dudes help me unpack my stuff. And, uh, my dad's getting ready to take me grocery shopping. And I, I turned around and I asked this dude what his name is. And he's like, Brett. And I just like the light clicked and it was this dude that I'd met in this, this segregation cell, except he'd gone to treatment and he'd eaten a whole lot. So he wasn't as like railed out and skinny like he was. Yeah. Which happens for several, several people that end up going to, going to treatment and doing that after they've been, you know, using for years and years. And so we clicked up as soon as I got in the house and, um, we were knuckleheads at first and we were both all about compliance. And I think he was trying to change. Um, but you had a friend. Yeah. Yeah. That was the biggest thing is like when I came in, I had so much shame and I hadn't told anybody about being sexually abused or doing anything like that. And, um, and I still felt empty and, and used up, but I felt like my mask had been ripped off of my face. Yeah. And so when I got here, people were just seeing me. And so it was like, I was, I was afraid of rejection again. And that's not what I was met with. Like the, all these other people had done terrible things too. Yeah. And especially, you know, talking about Brett, this is a guy who you were literally locked up with. And so we talk about this a lot in the homes. It's like, when you show up to help was alive, it's like, okay, I'm not alone. Like, because that's the thing, you know, when we're in our active addiction and you're talking to people that are trying to tell you, Oh, I, I know what you're going through, bro. I get it. And you're like, but, but you don't. But yeah. you don't. Yeah. Um, and so I'm special, Syndrome. I'm special. You don't you don't get it. Yeah. Um, but now you're in the home and here's a guy who you were just incarcerated with. So and not to say that this literally happened, but if he were to look at you and say, Bro, I get it, it's like, okay, he does. Yeah. And yeah. so sometimes that's all we need is just these little things, right? Like, okay, so I got a buddy here. Mm-hmm. And how crazy is that? Like, because at this point, Hope is Alive has over twenty homes, or at least twenty. Um Yes. And you guys both land in the same South room. OKC. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a God thing. Like yeah. I was saying it was a God thing. And knowing both of you and knowing the reputation that our South side program has the South side thing, um, <laughs> that is just, I mean, amazing to me. See, that's God working. Yeah. That you both landed on the South side of OKC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he put us in just the right spot and just the right home with just the right group of dudes, you know? Um, uh, COVID would happen. So I was, I was a COVID resident. Mm. Uh, I think that played a big part in how close all of us got in that home. Sure. Um, cause you know, like we were talking about, um, Evan Shadowin is our senior program manager in Kansas city and he was a resident with us and our house manager at a certain point while we were there as well. So I want to, I just want to throw that out there real fast, just for those listening, Evan Shadowin, Brett Mills and Luke here were all South side residents with pretty gnarly past, as you've heard, um, at least with Luke's, we'll get Evan and Brett on here soon enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and now are all three senior program managers. Evan oversees Kansas city and Wichita. Mm-hmm. You oversee North OKC and North Carolina. I oversee all of them. All of OKC. Yeah. Okay. So what am I talking about? North OKC, South OKC. It's and all North OKC Carol- now. Yeah. I'm changing it. <laughs> 
Um, and Brett oversees Tulsa, Claremore, and Dallas. Correct. I mean, come on. Yeah. That's it's per- wild. That's, I mean, if that's not God working, I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was really, is is wild. Um, but obviously, like where we are today and where we were then, like something had to happen in between. Right. Again, every store has a beginning. Yeah. Like I was talking about the beginning of the pod. And that's, again, for all, for all of you listening, that's the point. Everything that we're talking about here, that's the point. We want to sling some hope. We want everyone out there who's listening to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And that as good as a lot of us might be doing today, it wasn't always that way. So if you're a resident of the program and this is you, just know, like, you're not alone. We've all been there. Yeah. Maybe different, there's different flavors to all of our stories. Mm-hmm. But we've all started off. Luke, I wish we could sit here and talk all day, bro. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Absolutely. You are uh, a true inspiration to all of us. We all love having Luke around. If you ever uh, get a chance to see Luke at an event or just in one of the uh, HIA homes, I definitely recommend pulling him aside and talking for a few minutes. But Mm. thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of the Hope Dealers podcast. Please be sure to like this and uh, subscribe, share this with those who need to hear it. And we will see you again next time. That is the Hope Dealers podcast. A new place, a new home For a while, let me feel alive Nothing to hold me back Take my time, just enjoy the ride Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hope Dealers Podcast. If you or someone you know needs to get in touch with Hope is Alive, or maybe you just want some more information, please visit hopeisalive.net or call 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. I feel, I feel, I feel alive.